This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Every Friday, we invite two scientists with different areas of expertise to talk to us about their recent work. Then we ask them to continue the discussion with one another. The resulting conversation can be enlightening. It can be funny. Sometimes it's just plain buggy. Uh, Okay, I apologize. That was a long way to go for an insect joke, but I had to transition to bugs somehow, and I felt like it was the lesser of two weevils. No, really, I'm, I'm really done now. Today on the show, we're talking to two scientists who work with insects, but in very different ways. Joining us today is Clement Chow, a father of two whose Twitter banner is cooler than yours is, and a geneticist whose recent work on everybody's favorite research insect, the fruit fly, offers insights into why diseases can be so variable between individuals. Hi, Clement. How's it going? Awesome. Thank you. And also with us is Josh Tewksbury, an ecologist, evolutionary biologist, and conservation biologist who studies the climate impact on plants and animals, whose recent paper in the journal Science suggests that there are very hungry caterpillars out there who are about to get even hungrier, and who, I need to mention, photographers seem to love to shoot in black and white. Josh, welcome. (laughs) Thank you very much. First up today, the geneticist. In 2001, at the age of 48, I was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Now, it's obvious I'm not 48 anymore. I'm 64, and I haven't died, but I was given three years to live, and I thought I would die shortly, and I had to face up to this question. And since that time, I've seen many people that I consider better people than I have died, sometimes even with the same cancer. That's the religious philosopher Theodore Cabal trying to answer a question we've all asked at one time or another. Why do bad things happen to good people? Specifically in that instance, why do some people get a disease and die while others don't? How does science answer that question? Well, our first guest offers one answer in a new study in PLOS Genetics that shows that very tiny changes in an individual's genetics can have a profound impact on disease outcomes. Clement Chow, the study you just published had its roots in another discovery a few years back involving fruit flies and a condition known as retinus pigmentosa. Can you tell us a little bit about that condition and why did you start with fruit flies? Retinitis pigmentosa is a form of blindness. It's degenerative, so it gets progressively worse as an individual ages. It's one of the more common genetic causes of blindness. And we were really interested in thinking about why do all the patients who have a certain mutation that causes retinitis pigmentosa, why do they have different outcomes? Why do some people have faster degeneration and kind of end, end up with blindness a lot sooner than other, other patients. So we turned to the fruit fly to try to answer this question. And fruit fly is a really great model for genetics, especially thinking about variation between individuals because they're small and we can culture lots of them in, in the lab. And so we can work with hundreds and hundreds of different strains in the lab without too much effort. And that gives us the power to kind of study these types of effects in, in the lab. You started to hone in on a gene called bald spot, which is independent of the mutation that causes this condition. What does that gene do in relationship to this disease? In the original study, we found basically that if you put the mutation that causes retinitis pigmentosa into 200 different genetic backgrounds of flies or 200 different individuals. You can think about that. That basically every fly has a different progression of disease and a different severity. And so we use genetic mapping techniques to identify um, different genes in the background of those individuals that might be causing those, those differences we see in the original retinal degeneration disease. 
one of the genes we found, modifier genes is what we call them, what was called um, bald spot in flies. What my postdoc, Rebecca Palu, found was that flies without the function of this bald spot gene do better. They have less degeneration and presumably would have better outcomes for blindness as well. These flies are, in every other way, they're raised the same, they're fed the same. So those kind of like variations that you would see in human lives, which might impact the progression of a disease, those don't exist in these lab animals. That's correct. We can control for environment. That's very different from studying the human population. So it gives us kind of a more pure study of of just the genetic contribution to disease. And of course, differences in disease outcomes are contributed from both environment and genetics, but but we're trying to chase down the genetics by controlling the environment. And what you found was that just a little bit of variability in those genetics makes a big difference, right? The initial study found that changes in the bald spot gene alters the outcome of retinal degeneration. Now, those flies without the retinized pigmentosa mutations are normal and healthy and don't have blindness, but on the background of this retinal degeneration mutation, suddenly it has an effect. That's what we call cryptic genetic variation. This variation is kind of floating in the background and doesn't really have any consequence until you introduce another kind of maybe disease-causing mutation into the mix. I'm not a geneticist, so if you ask me how we use genes to fight disease, I'd say, well, yeah, we, we can use them to fight disease, and you'd want them to find some way to target the gene that that causes the disease. But what this paper shows is that it might be easier, it might be better, we might be more successful if we target these background genes that you're talking about, right? Right. So um, there's lots of ways we can think about targeting a gene for therapy. In this example, we can think about targeting small molecules that will inhibit the function of bald spot in patients with retinal degeneration or retinitis pigmentosa, and and that could be a promising approach for for therapeutics. One of the things that this paper demonstrates is that if very subtle changes make a very big difference in disease outcomes, it really stands to reason that We've got to do a better job of studying how treatments and therapies impact people from a very wide variety of genetic backgrounds. That's really where a lot of medicine, especially genetic medicine, is moving towards. This whole idea that we really need to be treating individual patients rather than whole groups of patients. And if we're treating individual patients, we need to take into account their genome and what environment they're living in and how to properly tailor a particular therapy for that mix of genetics and and environment. I think We've all heard that humans are very close genetically, 99.9% similar or something to that effect. But inside that really small percent of differences, a lot of really subtle differences, millions and millions of them. Given all that variation, is it really possible to tailor treatments to individuals? I think it is. It is a tough problem, and, but there are a lot of people working on it now. And with more and more sequencing technology, in 10 years, many, 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 many people will have their genome sequenced and will have better understanding of all those variants. And as we gain more understanding of those variants, we'll really be able to kind of connect the dots for genetic variation and, and therapies for personalized treatments. This is a fascinating study. It is in fruit flies. I know a lot of people want to make the jump immediately to, okay, we're going to cure this condition in humans now. Take a step-by-step. What's the next small step that you're taking in this area of research? The really nice thing about this model that we're studying of retinitis pigmentosa is that there are nearly identical models in mice, and the mutation we use is nearly identical to what's in humans. 
And this pathway that we're studying, this pathway that bald spot is in, is completely identical in mouse, human, and fly. So that gives us a lot of hope that this is going to work in the next step. And so our next step is, is likely to try some kind of genetic approach in a mouse model that's very similar to our fly. If we see the same thing in mice, I think that that would be really exciting and really promising, and we could come that much closer to thinking about therapies in humans. Clement, i got to ask about bald spot. Do you know where this name came from? I have no idea. Fly gene names are crazy. That's Clement Chow, whose recent study in collaboration with Rebecca Palu was recently published in PLOS Genetics. Clement, can you stick around to chat a little bit more at the end of the show? Absolutely. Black crickets by tens of millions came Like fog on the British coast And the finger of devastation marked Its course on the Mormon host And that, my friends, is the song Seagulls and Crickets from the album The Quest made by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the early 1980s to tell the story of a scourge of crickets that came to eat the crops of early Latter-day Saint settlers in Utah and the seagulls that swooped in to eat the crickets and save the day. Well, if our next guest is correct, we may soon be praying for a whole heap of seagulls. That's because his recent study in the journal Science suggests that the insects that already consume about 10 to 20 percent of the world's crops are going to grow hungrier as the world gets warmer. Josh Tewksbury, you and your colleagues have estimated that insects will increase their consumption of rice, maize, and wheat 10 to 25 percent for every degree Celsius of warming. That's not good, is it? No, it's not a good news story for our ability to produce food supplies for a growing world. So let's go back for a moment. Mostly when we think about climate change, we think about its effect on individual organisms. How did you and your research collaborators think to start looking at how climate change will impact organisms that in turn will impact other organisms that in turn will impact us? You know, it's not very seasonal in the tropics. And so as an animal living in the tropics, you have to get good at living with very little variation. But if you live in the temperate zone, you have to develop a physiology, a tolerance for a much broader range of temperature. Our first study on this sort of looked at the consequences of that difference in physiology for climate change. What you find is that smaller amount of change in temperature has a bigger impact on the ability of organisms to reproduce, simply because they're more specialized. The other thing that we found at that early study was it's actually kind of cold in the temperate zone, and it's too cold for a lot of animals, particularly insects, to live most of the year. So as the climate warms in the temperate zone, there is you know, ample opportunity for insects to increase. And then we started thinking about how that impacts us. Insects increasing in the temperate zone may be good for the survival of those insects, but it's not good for the survival of our crops. A lot of this has to do with how fast insects burn calories. Is that right? It's a combination. It's how fast they reproduce and how fast they burn calories. As it gets warmer, the metabolism goes up. And as your metabolism goes up, if you're an insect, you eat more. The hungry caterpillar gets hungrier. The other thing that's happening, though, is in the temperate zone, we are moving into temperatures which benefit the ability of those organisms to reproduce faster and produce more insects per year per acre. So in the temperate zone, you have predicted to have bigger populations of insects and hungrier insects. In the tropics, hungrier insects, but not necessarily bigger populations. 
who's going to get hit by this the worst? You talked about the temperate zone, but who, like, nation yeah, states, who are we talking about here? If I was a farmer and I was worried about insect pests and the effects of climate change, I think if you're in Canada, you're in worse shape than you're if you're further south in Texas. I think if you're in Utah, you're not in, you know, we're, we're looking at significant impacts on wheat and, and maize. And if you're growing those same crops in a much more southerly latitude, the impacts are much less. So in the United States, we're the biggest maize producer in the world, and we're looking at you know a significant unaccounted for reduction in yield because of insects. Just to put it in perspective, like right now, climate change is projected to reduce yield by about 5% for every degree of climate warming we have. What our study suggests is that's quite a conservative estimate. When you include the, the impacts of insects, you might need to come close to doubling that estimate. When we recognize that the world gets 42% of its calories from these three crops, reducing our ability to produce these crops is a big deal. All crops are going to face insect problems. If you're an apple farmer, you're harvesting grapes, they also have insect pests, and our model is very generic. We joked at the top of the segment about seagulls coming down and eating the crickets in this old Latter-day Saint story. But at some point, do we just have a new interaction between predator and prey? Do we get more seagulls? And Yes, it's probably not seagulls, but there's a, a whole bunch of predators on our insects. And in some ways, our model suggests that we just need to get a much better, much more sophisticated at using the contexts um, within which crops grow to protect those crops. Pesticides are not going to get more effective with climate change. But it is possible that things like predators will be able to suppress partially the increased growth of those pests. So biological control is a viable mechanism that scales along with the problem. So, you know, yes, we need to get better at working with those proverbial seagulls that might be coming down to help us. Does... uh eating insects help? I mean, could we just become consumers? <laughs> the United Nations has talked a lot about this, right? Sure. If you, if you happen to be in the niche market of growing insects for food, but that's pretty small economic benefits compared to the loss of the millions of tons of grains that we produce for most of the world. So we'd love to be able to separate our science from our politics, but when it comes to global warming especially, we certainly can't. This study was only published in late August, but it's rather shocking. I mean, there's nobody American seems to idolize more than the American farmer. Do you think this has a potential to impact the way people think about climate change? I would love to see that. I think uh, right now we have a, a challenged relationship between how we are producing knowledge and how we're using that knowledge to form our policies. So I think that this helps bring the conversation around to where climate change matters for people of all walks of life, right? What we're doing has you know, consequences right in the pocketbook and right in our livelihoods and in our ways of life. Yeah, super important. Josh, your work with Future Earth has you contemplating the years to come every day. How do you keep from just being completely depressed? It's a great question, but you can't get into. I mean, you know, I think fundamentally to be focused on sustainability is to be an optimist about the potential for people to make radical and rapid change for good. And there's ample evidence we've done that before. I and mean, I think our country is almost famous for its ability to do the right thing, you know, after it's tried a lot of other things first sometimes, but to make radical changes in direction when required. The ingenuity of people is fundamental to our salvation. We're not going backwards in time, we are innovating our way to a new way of working on this planet. And part of that is in our food systems. We have to change our food systems so that the impacts of climate change can be controlled. In a four-degree world, an increase of four degrees temperatures, which is where we're heading, is not a world we want for our children and grandchildren. Not any of us. It doesn't matter our political stripe. 
That's Josh Tewksbury, whose recent article in the journal Science warns that global warming might prompt insects to eat even more crops. Josh, can you stick around and chat with our first guest? Absolutely. Well then, Josh, it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to geneticist Clement Chow. And Clement, this is ecologist Josh Tewksbury. Hey, Clement. Meet you, Josh. I think it's fair to say that um, we're working on opposite ends on the uh, insect spectrum in terms of control. You have a lot more control of your system than I do of mine. That's right. Uh, (laughs) right. Along those lines, I had a question. What are the efforts kind of being in in the genetic engineering realm to to create crops that can withstand increases in insect predation or or increases in temperature? Very cool question. And, I mean... uh, I think that, you know, one of the fundamental challenges, of course, is the trade-offs inherent in, you know, in our, in our own genomes and, of course, in the genomes of crops in which, you know, uh, drought tolerance and insect tolerance are all require, typically require resources. And so crops are not always good at both. And so engineering a crop that's good at protecting itself from insects and good at withstanding climate change is, is a challenge. And it's not one that isn't gone untested. There are attempts to do just that. Generally, what we find is that, you know, as temperatures warm, the crops we're using today tend to invest less in protection. And a lot of what we do in you know, domesticating wild crops for domestic use is to create, is to maximize yield at the expense of any protection. And then we use pesticides to make up for the, lo- you know, the loss of the crop's ability to protect itself. So we augment it with our pesticides. And that, that only goes so far. And we, we, you know, we see the negative consequences of pesticides around us. So it's a large challenge, but there are people working on it. And I think, you know, the advances that we're making in, in genetic engineering and, and that sort, you know, open up an amazing amount of new tools that are potentially useful in this, in this struggle. There's a lot of opportunity, both in terms of engineering, you know, in, in thinking about how our crops are, are constructed and, and they have evolved, and then thinking about how the systems within which they are constrained or used effectively. I had a um, I had one question for you as well. I was wondering, in when you were speaking of you know the impact of background genetics on the presentation of retinal degeneration, what is the overall genetic contribution to retinal degeneration? Is it a large part? Yeah. So there's lots of causes of retinal degeneration. The 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 type that we're studying is mainly a Mendelian disease. So it's a single gene disorder. So it's a mutation in a very specific gene that causes retinal degeneration in, in the patient. But if you were to kind of broaden it out to any forms of retinal degeneration, that becomes a little too large and, and a little too wieldy, unwieldy, I think. But there's definitely kind of environmental causes to retinal degeneration, and, and there are some that are more complicated mixes of genetics and environment. And one reason why we do this is because we know the cause. It's this very specific mutation, and that makes it actually a lot easier to think about you know, background genetics and also kind of therapies because we, we already know the cause, right? And some of these other more common forms that you see in elderly patients, it's a lot harder to think about therapies because we don't really know kind of the environmental mix that went into that. And, and so that, right. that's, that's one reason why we're doing these kind of, quote, simpler models. That's great. That's really cool. So kind of related to that, actually, I was thinking about the insect side of your work and whether there's any work being done on trying to kind of take advantage of of kind of standing genetic variation in the insect population to try to drive down the population. I know there's been some work being done with CRISPR to handle yeah, insect and, population. And, uh, exactly, genetic drive work. Yeah, um, 
so I think there's there's a ton of excitement in that space, and and I think. I don't know how much of it has actually reached any kind of application phase. One of the challenges I think we face with the potential negative consequences of climate change on crop pests is that it has an impact both on the existing pests and making it easier for them to grow in population size and then increase generation times per year. And of course, that's sort of the the, the secret sauce for evolution right there. So bigger populations with faster generation times produce the opportunity to really expose rare variants that might be very good at overcoming some of our barriers we put in the way of the insects. And so genetic resistance becomes a bigger problem potentially. And then the other problem is that, you know, you also have new insects that are arriving. You know, climate change also creates opportunities for movement of insects moving up generally from southern to more northern regions. And some of that also produces additional challenges to farmers. I feel like, you know, the advances that are, you know, starting to come around the corner with some approaches that are just teasing on the edges with synthetic biology and some of the other approaches with CRISPR and and gene drive systems to just try and, you know, get ahead of the evolution or control the evolution of the insects themselves have a lot of promise, but I don't have a good example of them being put to use in agricultural sectors yet. I think the closest is some of the stuff with malaria control with, you know, in mosquitoes. Sounds like a tough problem. I think it is a tough problem. Yeah, I think it's difficult to constrain. And the other bit is we've also had some important bumps in in our use of, you know, genetic technologies in agricultural systems. Our history there is a bit checkered. There's a significant amount of distrust in the community around our ability to control the outcomes of that work. That also doesn't help us make real progress in the places where we can support healthier, diverse crops that also, you know, support a diverse environment around them. There's a history there, a human history with our relationship to our ability to either engineer crops or engineer pests to those crops or pesticide resistance that is troubled in its own right. Yeah, we have similar issues with thinking about genetic engineering or genetic therapies. In a lot of ways, the past has kind of made it harder to move forward. It's, of course, important, especially on the human side, to be more cautious. But I think some of the kind of cautiousness from the, from the past has really slowed down progress. Probably on the crop side and the human side, I think people are coming around because it's just becoming more and more common to think about genetics and genetics in our lives. I think we're becoming more comfortable with it. You know, one of the things that I, I think is you know fascinating here is that you know technologies like CRISPR and some of the approaches we're taking with even just thinking about how synthetic biology might work and our greater capacity to tinker with the building blocks of life. You know, they quickly create important ethical dilemmas. We just don't have governance in place to deal with all those, and so the caution in some cases I think is quite warranted because you know our technology is is moving faster than our sort of governance capacities to control that technology. But at the same time. From a sustainability perspective, the changes we're looking to produce in the next 30 or 40 years are not incremental changes of just tweaking around the edges. We do need to see some pretty profound changes in the way our systems work. And um, that's going to create a circumstance in which we are going to have to experiment to some extent. We're going to have to rapidly develop those controls so that we can use our technologies to benefit our species and the species that are all over the globe. Gentlemen, pardon just one more insect pun. I just came up with this question on the fly. Tell me this, Clement, you're working with insects to understand humans at a genetic level. And Josh, you study the way insects impact humans at an agricultural level. Should we all be spending a lot more time thinking about bugs? Well, for, for y- yes, maybe. <laughs> so um, for us, the fruit fly is a really nice model, 
right? It gives us all the tools that we need to manipulate at the scale that we need to study these types of variation in the laboratory. So it, it happens to be a very convenient model for us. But, you know, there are a number of other model organisms that serve other purposes in the lab, mice, yeast, worms. So I, I think that, you know, in science, we just use whichever model is the best for the question we're trying to ask. And, and for us, it happens to be the fruit fly. But, but they are powerful tools, and, and maybe more people should be using them in science. Yeah, and I would agree for a very different reasons, I would agree. I think, I think that we oftentimes have trouble looking at the indirect effects of something like climate change, or, and our study basically just points out that those indirect effects can be sometimes as large as the direct effects of climate change. And, you know, more generally, rather than just thinking about it as insects, I think, you know, we all exist in these really complex systems. There's social systems, there's political systems, there's natural systems, and there's the combination between our social systems and those natural systems. And we rely on those all over the place, whether it's the climate and the atmosphere that protects us or the food that we grow or, you know, the forests in the Amazon that really help drive the climate and weather in that atmosphere. Those systems are all connected, and we don't pay enough attention to those connections oftentimes and how, how our impacts on the planet can change those connections. So more focus on those systems will help us create a more informed population and one that will help us, you know, live better lives and more sustainable lives. Unfortunately, we are running out of time. Josh Tewksbury, thank you for joining us on Undisciplined. My pleasure, absolutely. And Clement Chow, thank you. Thank you, this was fun.